Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to the Daily Sun Up with the Colorado Sun. It's Thursday, October 19th. Today, Colorado Sun health reporter John Ingold talks about the state's awful season for West Nile virus and what caused it. Before we begin, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Applewood Plumbing, Heating, and Electric. A lot has changed in the last 50 years, and Applewood Plumbing, Heating, and Electric has changed a lot too. Founded in 1973, they've grown from their humble beginnings to become one of the most trusted residential plumbing, heating, cooling, and electrical providers in the Denver, Boulder, and Longmont metro areas. Applewood's story is centered on family, on outstanding customer service, and on community. From the entire Applewood Plumbing, Heating, and Electric team, they thank you for the opportunity to provide 50 years of incredible service. Now, let's go back in time with some Colorado history. Colorado's environmental concerns grew as rapid population expansion strained resources. In 1998, Vail, a renowned winter sports destination, planned an 885-acre expansion into the White River National Forest. This angered the Earth Liberation Front, a radical environmentalist group founded in England in the early 1990s. On this date in 1998, a faction of ELF known as The Family set fire to parts of the resort causing $12 million in damages. Their message to the media warned against prioritizing profits over wildlife. The FBI termed it eco-terrorism, and six members were imprisoned, with one evading capture for the past 25 years. Vale continued its development, reminding us that violence backfires as a persuasive solution for ecological issues. Before we continue, another quick message. Omwako Bwafu, Soul of Black Folks, is now on view at the Denver Art Museum. It features more than 30 paintings that tell stories about the beauty and complexity of black life. Boafu's bold, vibrant, and textured works have taken the contemporary art world by storm. Mwako Boafu, Soul of Black Folks, is only in Denver for a limited time. Don't miss it. Tickets are available now at denverartmuseum.org. Next, our feature story. Well, hi, everyone. Happy Thursday, and welcome to another edition of the Daily Sunup podcast. Uh, I am John Ingold. I'm the healthcare reporter here at the Colorado Sun. And if you're a regular listener, you know that uh, Thursdays are usually the day where I get together with my colleague, Michael Booth, and we talk about the latest in health, but also climate and the environment, the news in those areas. And today I wanted to do something uh, a little bit different and talk about a story that combines both. Uh, I'm talking about West Nile virus here. Um, With the first hard freezes of the year occurring across Colorado, the West Nile season has officially ended. And this year was an especially bad year. We had, uh, as of Wednesday, we had 582 cases of West Nile virus identified, 356 hospitalizations, 298 neuroinvasive cases. This is the most severe form of the disease. At where it's where it attacks the central nervous system. It can cause uh, long-term uh, cognitive difficulties. It can cause uh, long-term uh, challenges with gross motor. It, it's really where the virus can really do its, its most damage. And then it can also do worse. We had 43 cases uh, so far this year uh, where people were identified to have died of, of West Nile virus. That's more than two times the number that we saw last year. And last year was also a really bad year for West Nile. Now, Colorado doesn't have a lot of mosquito-borne infectious diseases, fortunately. We, we generally don't think of Colorado as being a very buggy place. And, and West Nile, in terms, of, in terms of our mosquito diseases, is pretty much it. But 
the numbers this year really highlight how Colorado has become not just a national hotspot for West Nile, but the national hotspot for West Nile. No other state has even come close this year so far to the numbers that Colorado put up. Only one state, and that's California, has seen more than 100 cases. And even there, the number that they have is still less than half of what we saw here in Colorado. So why is this? We explored this topic uh, during a panel at SunFest this year. And I want to play some clips from that panel for you today to help really explain what's going on. First, uh, we're going to hear from Anna Wanek. She is the surveillance director at a local company called VDCI, which monitors mosquito populations across the metro area. They're looking for uh, early signs, warning signs that, that West Nile might be spreading. Now, they are specifically focused in looking for a mosquito called Culex tarsalis, which is the primary vector for West Nile in Colorado. And here, Anna's going to tell you a little bit more about her work. My lab, um, I hire seasonals every year that um, go out and learn how to uh, set mosquito traps and identify uh, mosquitoes to species. Um, we, we take those mosquitoes back to my lab and um, sort out the uh, tarsalis, um, and then those are sent to the um, Colorado Department of Health and Environment for testing. Um, there's a few small contracts where I also uh, do ramp testing uh, for mosquitoes as well. And how do you know what a tarsalis looks like? Um, <laughs> I can picture it perfectly in my head, in fact. Um, <laughs> um, they have a white band on their nose. Um, they have a curved butt versus a pointy one. Um, there's a lot of little characteristics. Mosquito butts, people. Yeah. Didn't oh, yeah, I spend it. all day looking at butts. Yeah. <laughs> in addition to being a bad year for West Nile cases, this was also an extraordinary year for mosquito populations. The traps that Anna and her team use are about the size of a big gulp cup that you would get at 7-Eleven. And she told stories of how those traps this year were coming back just full of mosquitoes after only one night. Uh, just for perspective, this is, this is like 35,000 mosquitoes that might be squeezed into a single trap in a single night. This is just extraordinary off-the-charts numbers for anything they've really seen. And so I asked uh, Bob Hancock, who is a professor of biology at Metropolitan State University of Denver, to talk about this. I said, Bob, you know, what, what's going on here? Bob is, uh, he's known as the Mosquito Man. He is one of the state's leading experts on mosquitoes. He's really devoted his life to trying to understand these blood-sucking insects. And that makes him a pretty interesting dude. Uh, so I think you're going to enjoy hearing him uh, give his answer here on what's causing this mosquito boom. We were looking at uh, kind of precipitation and trying to relate precipitation to mosquito abundance in our traps. And it was uh, striking the amount of precipitation this year we had in May and June. Mm -hmm. Three and four times, and in many, many parts of the state, um, historical records way back since they started recording these data in the 1800s. And we're seeing more of that kind of thing. And I don't know if it's just a blip on the radar and then it comes back and we go to drought again or, or what, but mosquitoes need water and we've got a lot of it this year. But it's not just a historically wet year that sets Colorado up to be what Bob has called a, a mosquito factory. Instead, this is really a story of how humans have shaped the environment to make Colorado a more hospitable place for us to live. 
It's about how we've captured and stored and moved and how we use water. It's how we've taken this desert and the, the semi-arid plains and transformed them into places that can sustain large human populations. This is what's really supercharging the mosquito factory. So I asked entomologist Doc Weissman to explain this. Doc is really well known for this work in Colorado. He had a hand in founding the Butterfly Pavilion. He's worked at various museums. He's just really kind of a, a very prominent entomologist, and he's also now VDCI's chief entomologist. And so here is his answer on how human actions have made life pretty good for mosquitoes in Colorado. 100, 150 years ago, uh, this is Shortgrass Prairie. There were no trees to speak of. There was very little water. There was very little nectar. And for blood meals, there weren't many humans either. Uh, so the four things that mosquitoes need to survive are water, because most of their life cycle is in the water, the eggs, the larvae, the pupae, all in the water. They need nectar, that's their main food source. Only the females get blood, they need the protein to lay eggs. So the females and the males both go after nectar for the fuel. But, but you know, if your only nutrition comes from Mountain Dew, you know, you're not gonna be able to survive very long. <laughs> Certainly not gonna have enough protein to lay eggs. So the females have to get that blood meal to get the protein to lay their eggs. Actually, I've survived pretty long on that. Anyway, um, and then uh, here in Colorado, it's, it's hot. You, th you think of mosquitoes kind of like vi vampires in some ways. If they're out in the sun, they're gonna die. Well, 150 years ago, it was all sun. There were very few places to hide from the sun. There were no trees in Denver. There were, there were very few trees along the riverways. Um, and so the mosquitoes wouldn't live long enough to get a virus like West Nile built up in their system. They would just die before that happened. So if I would have been here 150 years ago, I wouldn't have had a summer job because there just wasn't enough in the way of mosquitoes. Yeah. You get a burst in the springtime yeah. when the snow melts come and then it dry up. And you get a burst during the monsoons, it dry up again. And so mosquitoes weren't an issue 150 years ago. We've created the perfect habitat for them. We grow trees everywhere. We've got shade everywhere. We've got water everywhere. Uh, not just these detention ponds and retention ponds you see around town, but also irrigation. We use a lot of water with irrigation, and that creates pools of water where mosquitoes can breed. Uh, and you know, even the Smurf swimming pool in the backyard, if you don't dump it out once in a while, you know, when the grandkids are done playing in, in it, you're gonna get mosquitoes in there too. So we've created the perfect habitat for them. And what's most interesting, or maybe alarming, if you prefer, it's how this combination of factors here could really ripple into the coming years. Yes, we had a wet year this year. Yes, it was an anomaly. Yes, it produced an extraordinarily bad mosquito year. But this might not just be a one-year thing. There could be long-term consequences here that uh, affect mosquito populations next year and the year after that and the year after that, even if we don't get as much precipitation in, in the forthcoming years as we did this year. So here is Weissman. And then uh, later Hancock, also explaining how uh, this could happen. The reservoirs are filled. If they remain filled through the winter, next spring, anyone with water rights is going to be able to use them regardless of whether we get spring rains or not, regardless of whether we get a huge snowpack or not, the reservoirs are filled. And so yeah. irrigation is going to happen next year. So the irrigation factory, John, and when, when we talked, I called it the mosquito factory. We made a mosquito factory. But the other piece that's so important here is that we have a, a lot of mosquitoes that are alive now. Now what's happening now is we're gonna go into winter. Culex mosquitoes overwinter as adult females 
They go into culverts, rodent burrows, mines. One of the original discoveries of Culex tarsalis overwintering was by a CDC scientist from Fort Collins. They were in a mine shaft. Back in the you know, middle of the 20th century, that discovery was made. And if those mosquitoes that are going in there can actually overwinter, we know, we're, we know that we're gonna send a lot of them into that winter diapause because of how many that we have and how good that our you know, temperature, moisture, we've had these conditions. So there's probably a lot more going in and there could be a lot more coming out. So the takeaway here is where are your bug repellent, folks? Uh, when it's mosquito season again, come spring, come summer, uh, make sure you got long sleeves and long pants on when you're out uh, at dusk and during times when mosquitoes are active. Make sure you get that bug repellent on that has DEET. And really just be mosquito aware because it, it's not just an itchy bite. It, it could actually be something that dramatically affects your health. Now, I will say this panel was a lot of fun. Uh, Bob Hancock uh, is also a filmmaker and he showed some of his videos. Uh, we also had a really great questions from the audience. So if you're interested in this stuff and you want to learn more, uh, you can go and watch the whole thing right now on coloradosun.com slash sunfest. You'll scroll down and find the panel titled The Future of Colorado's Bugs. And while you're there, you can also watch all our other SunFest panels. They were all really fascinating, all very much worth your time. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and I'll see you back here next week. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. Both directions of Interstate 25 closed since Sunday between Colorado Springs and Pueblo should be fully open by Thursday afternoon. Colorado Governor Jared Polis toured the site where a train derailment sent coal and train cars onto the highway, killing one man. The governor said southbound lanes would open Wednesday afternoon and the northbound lanes no later than Thursday afternoon. National Transportation Safety Board investigators said preliminary indications suggested part of the track was broken and the bridge over the interstate collapsed after the cars derailed. A final report could take up to two years to be completed. If you've ever skied in Nebraska, you know that skiing on the east side of Interstate 25 in northern Colorado really isn't that far-fetched. The Hoedown Hill ski area is set to open in December as part of the bigger community that continues to build out in Windsor. In addition to ski runs, there will be tubing at the 12-acre plot that's part of the Water Valley Company, which currently includes two golf courses, water parks, and thousands of homes. The new hill will cater to families looking to try the sport and avoid the hours-long trek into the mountains. The three men charged in a deadly rock-throwing spree that killed a 20-year-old woman are linked to similar attacks in which rocks narrowly missed the head of one driver and flung shattered glass into the eyes of others. That allegation came Wednesday from the lead detective in the case. The string of attacks were detailed in a Jefferson County courtroom as prosecutors laid out the evidence against the men accused of hurling landscaping rocks at seven moving cars April 19th in Jefferson and Boulder counties. A judge bound over all three men for trial at the end of the hearing. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. The Colorado Sun is nonpartisan and completely independent. We're always dedicated to telling the in-depth stories we need today more than ever. And the Sun is supported by readers and listeners like you. Right now, you can head to coloradosun.com and become a member, starting at $5 per month for a basic membership, and if you bump it up to $20 per month, you'll get access to our exclusive politics and outdoors newsletters. 
Thanks for starting your morning with us, and don't forget to tune in again tomorrow.